Welcome back to 10 Questions. Today's guest is the comedian and actor Dilruk Jayasena. I've known Dil as he's often called from around the comedy traps for quite a few years and watched him graduate from open mics to headlining and from bit parts on TV shows to main roles. I last spoke to him in 2015 before I moved to LA and while I was gone he released two hour-long comedy specials, one a Logie and lost more than a third of his body weight. We discuss his life in detail here, growing up in Sri Lanka, Melbourne University, being an accountant at KPMG, and then moving into stand-up. But if you want to listen to more Dilruk after the show, check out the 10 Questions with Adam Zwar Patreon page, where we discuss the top three stand-up shows Dilruk's had the pleasure of seeing. Spoiler, he was tangentially involved in at least one of those shows. But as usual, I started proceedings by asking Dilruk when he was most happy. For me, I reckon it's again a tough one for me to uh, narrow down because I like to think of myself as a happy, happy, pretty. My default setting is happy <laughs> in general, but to narrow down to the happiest, I guess there's two things that pop to mind. One is when I think I was like three or four um, on my birthday, I woke up and my uh, parents had got me a He-Man figurine that came with oh, ba- wow. and Battle Cat as well. <laughs> And, and I had a very clear memory of seeing it in the shops, seeing the price tag, and for some reason having an awareness that we can't afford that. And oh, wow. it felt like, oh, that's very cool. And some amazing rich child is going to get it or whatever. But unfortunately, I'm not one of them kind of thing. And just I used to walk past the store a lot. And it used to be this glass... Um, uh, you know, window store in 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 a in a shopping mall in Sri Lanka called Liberty Plaza, and uh, the name of the shop was Exclusive Lines. I remember that very clearly. Oh, wow. It's I don't know what their brand was because they sold figurines as well as like colognes and shit. I just I don't know what their their the but I remember constantly walking past and staring at it and going like, oh my god, imagine being able to play with that. And then waking up on my birthday and somehow my parents managed to afford it and get it for me. And then I just like adored every inch of it to the point where on the back of the cardboard box, you had the figure, the other figures you could buy in the series or whatever. I remember asking dad to cut them out so I could then play with those as other characters. <laughs> so, oh, so, mate, you were a sweet kid. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I reckon it's, that is one that I just think of being super happy but also, you know, the flip side of saying, you know, we necessarily couldn't afford something like that is that my dad worked in the Maldives at like this beautiful tourist resort that, you know, is the other end of like luxury. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And and uh, by the time I guess I was around four or five, maybe a bit old, maybe six, he was a little bit higher up in management. So he started off junior level and worked himself up so that we were able to go and stay on the resort. And we kind of did that pretty much. My brother and I, I have one brother, and we did that almost every Christmas and New Year till from the age of like five till uh, 25 or something like that. Oh, my God. And and, yeah, what was your dad's role there? So he was management. management, Yeah. So he was resident manager and then general manager. And, you know, uh, by the time we got to drinking age, he was (laughs) the the head guy. And so a lot of free grog. (laughs) Wow. Wow. and what's your brother? What's your brother do? So he used to be. Uh, this is going to sound so weird. Uh, he used to work in hedge funds in Monte Carlo. <laughs> oh, oh my god! 
You should get him on the podcast. <laughs> uh, my, uh, I've been to Monte, I've been to Monte Carlo. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but I, I had a friend who got arrested for walking down the street without a shirt on. Yes. Yes. That sounds about right. <laughs> my brother, mm. my, my brother told me about his friends uh, who he knew would drive from Italy. If their cars didn't look like they were too dirty or whatever, they turned the cars away. Like, oh, no, nope, yeah. doesn't suit the size style. So I've gone from in one answer, one question, one answer to your question of being not sure if we can afford a He-Man figurines to having a dad who works in the Maldives and a brother who worked <laughs> in Monte Carlo. So, you know, anyone's bullshit radar going off. I can understand it, but let's just say a, a very complicated um, backstory. <laughs> well, I mean, you're used to massive change in your life because you went from being an accountant to, mm-hmm. to stand up yeah. and really becoming hugely successful so you you've seen most of what you know that the, this great tapestry of life has to offer exactly exactly and just to finish off the thing about my brother he was in hedge funds in monte carlo at the age of uh 29 he semi-retired basically left that world and now he has a blog <laughs> so <laughs> so i went from being an accountant to uh, and my brother went from being a hedge fund to a hedge fund manager uh, marketing manager to blogger and comedian. So we used to be the we used to be the poster children for our cousins and our aunties would like would like yell at their kids, going, you gotta be like Dilshan and Dilruk. Look how hard they study and look now they're both working in these great jobs. And now they're like, hey, don't do what they did. <laughs> one's a comedian, one's a blogger. <laughs> but it actually, it's like if anyone's willing like to ask me, I'm like, no, no, no. Like, trust me, you want to do it our way <laughs> because yeah. you need to almost taste what you're running away from so that you can commit to something that is so thankless at the beginning. Well, that's right. And, and I, you know, the, the other way around doesn't work at all. Does it? No one goes from stand up into accountancy. Well, we don't know. Do there are people in our, there are people in our industry that I know. I think Kareem Grant, for example, went from comedy to a lawyer. That's true. <laughs> so look, it's each to their own, but I guess really what it comes down to is questioning your, um, you know, your assumptions. Mm. My assumption at the time uh, before comedy was I need to earn money uh, to be happy. And what's the best way to do earn money or be in the corporate world. And I was so miserable that I went, okay, if I had all the money in the world, what would I do? And stand ups like hit me like a flash. And then it took me about a year to get up on stage and actually do it because I have a fear of public speaking. And so I just spent a year of drinking and partying, going, I'm not a community, I'm not an accountant. It was like a celebration of like being out of the closet of the accounting closet or whatever. <laughs> and so, uh, and then I finally kind of had a crack at an open mic gig. And this is what I always say to people like, I've bombed so hard that first one. But when you start to do something that is closer to, for lack of a better word, your calling or something you're passionate about, yeah. the result didn't matter. It was the process that fired me up so much. And you can probably hear it in my tone of voice as I'm changing, as I even think about that, like how valuable it is to discover the thing that you're willing to, like where the struggle is joy. You know, finding something that looks like work for everyone else, but is play for you is something that I get evangelical about. Like it could be accounting, it could be hedge funds, but just question your assumption as to why you're there. You know, there's that, it's that thing of like, oh, people say, oh yeah, I love my job. All right. You get $10 million in your bank account tonight. What are you going to do tomorrow? And most people Mm. be like, oh yeah, probably cook my job. Whereas I feel so chuffed to say, no, I'm still going to do this open mic in Perth in this Friday. (laughs) Yeah. I'm still going to be doing that. Like, yes, I might probably stay at a nicer hotel when I get there. (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I got asked, I said, what's my ultimate career? What's my perfect version of career or something like that. I said, for me, it would be being at a position where people know me and respect my work well enough that I can pop into a comedy club and do 
a spot. And they were like, so your dream ultimate version of work is to be able to do more work. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> like that's... it's just I just want e- less barriers to be able to do what I do. Well, you're brave enough to take the, you know, to make the leap and do what you wanted. A lot of people don't do that. I know, and it is something that I guess uh, people like. Yeah, it's something that I get. You know, they have causes that they're really passionate about, whether it's environmental or you know, human rights. For me, I think the one for me is I'm like just wishing that everyone could know the benefit of finding a struggle that you enjoy yeah and not, oh, lovely and, you know lovely. what i mean like because struggles guaranteed success mm. isn't the struggle is always going to be there so you might as well pick a struggle that you enjoy question two on that note question two <laughs> who would you like to apologize to and why um thought hard long and hard about this one uh my parents it has to be my parents purely because i have such a fantastic relationship with them right i'm 36 turning 37 soon and it's been really great, especially in the last, say, 10 years or so, you know, thanks to therapy and all kinds of things on my end. But growing up, I really definitely didn't appreciate the things they did for me as much as um, I could have. Um, I'll give you a very clear example of like, so mom used to pick us up from school. Um, and because obviously with the school, didn't you know, it's a big Catholic school in Sri Lanka, and uh, there'll be a lot of, you know, pickup vans and things like that that would park. So in order to get a good car park, closer to the gates, mom would have to get there 40 minutes earlier in the hot Sri Lankan sun and park there. And she did that just so that we didn't have to walk too far to get to her. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, so something like that every day for, you know, however long the school day was, is something that I think I was more entitled to than ever fully feeling grateful for. It felt as a child. I mean, again, I'll try and forgive myself a little bit because I was a kid and, um, you know, we're all shits when we're, we're children because, but it's the love of my parents is something that I have started to feel more grateful for. Whereas when I grew up, I think I was just entitled to, because that's all I knew. I just had these two people who were really supportive of me and adored me. And I just assumed that's what everyone got. But the older you get, the more you meet other people, you hear about dead shits of parents who are out there Mm. and just knowing the amount of love and sacrifices and support. Like the fact that my dad even worked overseas was purely because he believed that, you know, if he gets more money, then he can give us a better education. That was 100% his, his motivation. I, in fact, we've since all of this, we talked about it. And he said to, to me and my brother, like, you know, he hated being away from his home country, Sri Lanka. He hated, like, you think it's a luxury to be in the Maldives in a tropical island, but it's actually kind of almost prison-like because you walk around it in 12 minutes and you're working, you know, it's a 24-hour job on this island resort. And for him, the motivation was every semester seeing how amazing my brothers and my grades were. So he's like, okay, these guys are pulling their their side of the bargain. I'm going to, you know, give my side of the bargain. So that commitment to our education and those sacrifices, 100% 100% I felt I, I think I'd never truly appreciate it so my apologies to my parents for not showing enough gratitude for that but they would frame it as say no no your work showed us how much you cared you know the fact that you did study and you took those opportunities is is um, is enough thanks but I feel like wow. I never verbalized it until recently in fact going back to the he-man thing uh I got drunk but I think it was around 2008 
13 or 14. Um, and in like the 2 a.m. in the morning, I was like, you know what? My parents are great. I started writing an email to them about the He-Man figurine and how much I loved it. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, that was my next question. What, so when you started realizing how much commitment your parents had for your, you and your brother, mm. uh, when, did you, when did you start expressing it to them, your gratitude? Uh, I, I would say it... I, I would say roughly it starts around when I hit the age that they had me and my brother. So my brother's five years older. They would have been around 27, 26 when they had their first child and then 32, 33 when they had me. I think that's when it hit me going, oh my God, like these two people had a five-year-old and a one-year-old, like a, you know, baby. And I don't even know what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they, like, I, yeah, I definitely yeah, have yeah. things that I'm like, oh, I wish they did this better or did that or they've given me this insecurity or that. I'm like, mate, but they didn't have the resources that we have these days about parenting and understanding about child psychology. They did a cracking job. You know, you and yes, unfortunately, certain things like, you know, my, you know, binging, eating and binge drinking somehow is still linked to them. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But it's like, and it's my responsibility yeah, yeah, to yeah. fix that. But, you know, they still had a, gave it a genuine crack and it was all out of love. You know what I mean? So, um, and they're proud of you uh, now would obviously that would have been worried when you gave up being an accountant for stand up. Um, it is a, it is an interesting one because they definitely were worried for sure. I think worry is a good one because I think I've come to learn that most parents, I don't have any kids of my own, but I've understood that basically most parents just want to know that your kids are going to be okay once you die. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to explain to uh, Sri Lankan you know, a 60 year old yeah. couple by this son who has a bachelor of commerce education from Melbourne uni and a job at KPMG, <laughs> you know, is suddenly like, Oh yeah, I'm just going to go tell dick jokes for a living. <laughs> you know, how is that the part of their security and safety? Where's the stability? Cause it's a weird yeah. one. Cause when I first, uh, because, so I got fired from KPMG six months into it because it was part of their probation. I didn't pass it. So then I had that reassessment of, okay, I did that purely for the money. What would I do if I had all the money in the world? And I remember telling them about stand-up and dad was like, that's amazing. You've always been really funny. And we, you know, you've been very performative. You're going to be great. But he thought it was a hobby. Yeah. And he didn't, I remember a few months later, he asked me, so how's it going with finding a new job? I'm like, uh, remember the thing about comedy? He's like, oh, that's a hobby though, isn't it? I'm like, no, 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 mate, I'm in. I'm full down. I'm like mentally checked out of accounting. And so I think that was just, they were worried. But I think then them seeing how, you know, literally mom saw me perform in 2012. So I've been doing comedy two years at that point. Mom and dad came to an open mic gig and um, I bombed. And mom's, uh, I said, oh, what do you think? And she goes, well, you look happy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think they supportive of the fact that I didn't, I was not myself when I was in KPMG. Like I felt like I was really, um, like I was depressed, I guess, is to put a label on it. But we couldn't articulated because this was the dream job this is what i'd worked to was getting why why do i feel so sad and and i think finding this was like oh he's back you know this is the guy we know oh and, that's nice and and i think then once you know things started ticking over the little bits and bobs you know the the ten dollar twenty dollar gig started becoming more consistent yeah. and you know and then of course they came in 20 came to australia in 2017 and um i think that's when things started to like yeah. literally i'd come home from uh from a whatever gig or something like that and um mom had it on like because uh, uh, there'll be an ad for abc's utopia or something she's waiting to see the ad or something like like uh. they, they those elements those sort of what you know you and i know in the world is like those are the bonus of what we get to do like yeah. we love the work itself 
but for parents, I think seeing that physical manifestation of it and, yes. and maybe even like little moments, like we were in the airport flying from Sydney to Melbourne and someone in the airport stopped and asked me if they could take a photo. Like that's huge for them. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yeah, 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 so, totally. So, so I think now they're just, oh, mate, my, so my stand-up special on Amazon, um, my dad's watched it 22 times. <laughs> oh my God. Good on him. And, and uh, you performed in Sri Lanka too, haven't you? I saw photos. No, oh. I have not yet done oh. a single gig in Sri Lanka. Sorry, they were just photos from Dilruk's Instagram page of him going back to Sri Lanka at Christmas time. I imagine the stand-up bit. It's a weird feeling, man. I feel like I've I've messed it up. I feel like I I should have done it years ago and now with the pandemic i've regretted not being able to do it i think you should get a documentary crew to follow you because it'd be so interesting to see what jokes work you know here show show how the joke works in australia versus how the joke works in sri lanka mate because there's definitely different uh there are things that i guess the context of me being a immigrant uh, in australia definitely has more fuel uh in certain certain jokes than say the same jokes back in sri lanka of course but then there's also things like religious stuff. Like uh, my dad's a Buddhist, my mom's a Muslim, and I went to a Catholic school. Oh, my like... God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> so for me, I can comfortably come out as an atheist in Australia. But in Sri Lanka, I'd have to tip it around the word atheism because it's almost like any context, like the fact that religion is in the conversation of comedy, it would be controversial in itself. Yeah, Even though yeah. I come from a completely respectful way, I literally talk about how mom and dad still have separate prayer areas in the house, like little prayer rooms. And that's how much religion is part of my life. Even though I'm not a practicing person, I still think I'd, I'd second guess about sharing that in a Sri Lankan stage than I would in Australia. Interesting. Because that, a lot of prejudgment, I guess, comes with all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I think that the, the, the um, I, I, look, and I could be wrong. That's the other thing. I could be wrong. I could be overthinking it. But I'm just so scared that people might, you know, think that if it's the topic of religion, it should not be touched in a com- comedic fashion. Gotcha. You know what I mean? Whereas when I go to Malaysia, they have such a mix of, you know, uh, Chinese Muslims, you know, Indians and all of that. And all of that is on the forefront. All the jokes are around those differences. And in a way, it's like it's celebrated the differences rather than necessarily. I mean, some of it you could argue is punching down or whatever, but it feels more like punching sideways. You're all having a bit of fun. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. In, whereas in Sri Lanka, I worry that that I don't know whether I'd, I'd, I'd actually be comfortable talking about religion. Let's take that as a broad topic. I'd be like, you know what? Let me just stick to uh, my other topics that I have. <laughs> I'll talk about how much we hate Shane Warne. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do. I, I've just got a book coming out and I, I've, uh, uh, Murali is in the first sentence. Oh, yeah. That's huge. Yeah. What a, I mean, oh <laughs> my God. I'm, I'm in. You're in. I knew, I knew you're in. <laughs> um, question three What is your greatest regret? Uh, it's linked to what I said in part two which is um, the sacrifices my parents made for me. Uh, they always framed it as going, oh, we, um, you know, you still made the most of it. But that changed for me once I came to Australia because I came as a straight A student who never really drank and within a week became, you know, a pisshead on campus that everyone knew. I literally, within a week, I was at the Armadale Hotel in Melbourne uh, and this random came and said, hey, man, are you the Sri Lankan guy that can skull beers? Can you skull my jug <laughs> and watch me finish a jug in 11 seconds? Oh so my, my ability to drink pints was what broke me out of my comfort zone. So it's a longer story. I, I, I Honestly, if I get into the, the way that all week panned out, 
it it would it would blow out this entire podcast. But it went from not knowing anyone on campus to walking around a pub crawl wearing a bum bag because mom told me to make sure I have all my documents safely on me. <laughs> <laughs> and then sculling pines, randoms getting me ch- chanting and ch- saying, come on, watch this Sri Lanka guy. He can scull like crazy. And all these senior dudes trying to keep up with me in boat races to then sculling a bottle of champagne because I didn't know the difference between them. <laughs> champagne and beer and then <sighs> passing out them waking me up going where do you live man we need to drop you off and i am like i'm like broken spewing everywhere i'm like i don't know and then we finally realized the way to find out where i lived was to go to the bum bag and we found the lease agreement <laughs> oh wow wow <laughs> yeah so we then anyway, so, from, <laughs> so once that happened it became such a big, my identity shifted from the kid who studied hard and found self-worth in how good his grades are to all of a sudden being the guy who's known for being able to put away beers and therefore becoming popular on campus. And it's something I'm fascinated about, you know, 14, well, 18 years since I've that all week, you know, I uh, look back now and the fundamental difference between my desperation to wanting to fit in versus really wanting to belong. Because I think we all just want to feel like we belong somewhere. But in order to do that, we do these things that we're just trying to fit in. We try and change things about us just to see like, okay, so that I can blend in and no one's going to notice or whatever. Whereas belonging is what we just want to be accepted for who we are. And I think I got that wrong back then. And so in that, I then went headfirst into my partying ways that I didn't know I had. It was like dormant. It came out. And um, and the regret I have is knowing that I didn't make the most of the amount of money it cost my parents to send me to Australia and get that degree. Um, it's a difficult, it, it is one of those ones that I've learned to uh, move on from, but I held on to that regret and it caused a lot of pain for years because dad couldn't retire because he was paying for my uni fees as well as rent and well as food. Like literally I did, you know, the expectation wasn't there for me to work. So that, um, that entitlement that I talked about before was very much, you know, in full flight at this point. And it's fueled not only just with the entitlement of, you know, school pickups or whatever, but now it's with money and now using that money to uh, pay for grog and stuff like that. And I remember there was one particular time I had to make an embarrassing call to him and say, oh, by the way, uh, on the bank statement, you might see something that says um, men's gallery. Uh, (laughs) 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 You know, letting you know. I, yeah, I just had some uh, breasts in my face. <laughs> I, I understand the kind of, you know, the fitting in and belonging thing, but but what was the thing that made you go from living a pretty kind of straight life to actually go, that looks good, I want that? Uh, I don't think I left with the intention of, um, you know, being the party guy. I, I definitely was, like I said, my self-worth was linked to being, you know, top grades and winning prizes for, you know, best all-round student and, you know, getting scholarships and all kinds of stuff in Sri Lanka uh, regarding academia. Like, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, one of my proudest things is that there was a, you know, the maths exams were in like 
um, you know, you get the the first year model and the second year module. And I was like, first year uh, seems pretty basic. I'll start on, I'll, I'll learn both at the same time. So I would actually go to the seniors class, sit with them and they'll be covering stuff that I hadn't learned yet, but I'm like, I'll pick it up later. And then, you know, manage to get a hundred percent on the, the second year module as a first year student. So I was really like, like I said, like I was really proud of my ability to study hard. And, and so I really was ready to kick some goals in Australia but that went off track within that first week because this other side of me, I guess it's like attention from girls for the first time, um, you know, and mm. also it was like the cool kids on campus. I was never the, I was, I never felt like a cool kid, you know, in, in school. I was always like kind of caught in between because of my sense of humor and stuff, mm. but I was never part of the cool guy. All of a sudden, the Melbourne Uni Common Student Society, they're running barbecues. Everyone's like a shredded dude or a blonde girl. And, you know, like it's, it was all that stereotype of frat, frat boy culture. And suddenly I was part of it. Yeah. All of a sudden, I am now getting attention because, oh, I have like a guest list to a nightclub and blah, blah, blah. Like it was bullshit, right? But when you're a 19-year-old guy, mate, that meant the world to me, especially a 19-year-old guy who never saw them as a selves as an attractive person. Yeah, yeah, right. You know? Uh, you know, I think so. I, I've I've had to dissect a lot of this in therapy, but yeah, that that sense of worth was directly linked to being known on campus. And and my friends who are my uni mates, I'm still friends with right now. They talk about how annoying it is to walk with me in Melbourne Uni. You think it's such a big place, you're not going to know anyone. Like, but every like you know, 100 meters, 200 meters, I'd, someone would stop and try and chat to me, go, oh man, you know, are you coming to this thing tomorrow? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll see you there. Like, so for me, I'm getting this ego boost of being this international student who everyone knows. And so fast forward, like into third year, I become the president of the Common Student Society. And at the same time, also, I was the clubs and societies officer for the whole student union. So these are two positions that I've, I've never verified, but I'm pretty sure has never been done by a international student because it's all done by student voting. But the fact that I was able to amass this support within like two or three years of being in the country was something I genuinely, I mean, to be honest, I still am proud of. Yeah, like that yeah. is still quite a, a, a really thing that I'm, a, a, a thing that I'm truly like think was a something I did well, mm. but it came at the cost of academia taking a dip. Now, this is an example of how uh, the regret I feel is not that I, I never failed a single subject. I always passed, but pass was as bad as a fail for me yeah, because yeah. I knew what I was capable of. And my first few, um, first semester, you see, I have H1s, like three H1s or something like that. And I remember getting like an H2A, which is the one level below the top grade and being like, oh, I dropped the ball on that one. And then immediately after that first semester, you start to see the grades deteriorate. And then I have an awakening and I pick it up again towards the end. But but it, but it that middle bracket uh, was something that I know I absolutely did not take any advantage of the 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 privileges I have uh, had as my dad was paying for this education, um, especially I'll give you a specific example, uh, corporate law in second year, uh, second semester, I think it was, um, I went into the first lecture, it was so boring, so dry, I was like, bugger it, I'm not going again. <laughs> I went to the final lecture 12 weeks later, took down notes as to her hints, the lecturer's hints as to what might be on the exam. And then the night before the exam, so the exam, let's say, was at 9 uh, at, at uh, nine a.m. on a Tuesday. I remember vaguely. It was like 9 a.m. Tuesday. On, on Monday, I finished another exam at 1 p.m., came home, and between, say, 1 p.m. And, and 9 a.m. the next day, I downloaded 24 hours worth of lectures, listened to it on double speed without sleeping. 
Oh my God. <laughs> and, and went to the exam and still got 57% or something like that. So it was because I was, I always say like I left uni with a qualification, not an education. Yeah. <laughs> Because I knew how to study. I just don't remember what I studied. <laughs> that, yeah, I, just yeah, knew, yeah. I just knew what I needed to do. So all of that, I was so filled with shame later that my you know, dad couldn't even retire. I remember sitting uh, at one of the small accounting firms that I was working for um, during my lunch break, watching an interview with Malala on Jon Stewart. So I was just killing time during my lunch break. And he, when she talked about having to dodge bullets to get to mm. high school, Mate, I started bawling my eyes out. Like it hit me the amount of children around the world that have, you know, would, would, I mean, literally give their life to get the education that I've gotten. And instead I found value in, you know, being able to finish a beer bong in five seconds. Like, yeah, it, it, but it's something, look, uh, you know, I mean, this is a, a, a deeper conversation, but it's something about being a little bit destructive and rebellious. Mm. That make that makes you funny. You can't just be a really straight laced person and and be funny because you need to see the angles. I I agree with you, and I think what it is is it's about we all have something in us that is weird or different or 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 unique. Um, and if it isn't channeled correctly, mm. then it manifests in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So so I was convincing myself that I'm this straight laced, you know, but rewinding back to when I was a kid, I'd stand in front of the mirror making like I loved Mr. Bean and uh, Jim Carrey. So I'd do all these faces and try to like, you know, wobble my face like they would and stuff like that. So I then I saw Eddie Murphy's Delirious at the age of 10. And I was like, oh, my God, this there's a thing called stand up that exists. And so I was obsessed with comedy. But because I'd lived in a country that there was no stand up, there was no Russell Peters at the time. He opened so many doors for the subcontinent. But um, so it just kind of was buried. And what happened is that same, that, you know, that, that side of me that's playful found, you know, the play in the wrong areas. Yeah. 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 Being being a piece of disruptive, whatever, or being wanting to be the center of attention and all those things that I'm, whatever reason I'm wired this way. I'm so grateful to comedy that I found a way to channel it because Yes. Since becoming a stand-up, I'm so much better at parties because I'm, for the first time, interested in what other people have to say. Whereas before comedy, I was so desperate to feel like I'm the funniest person at this party. I, I would do things that that just to get attention because I'm like, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm, I'm, I matter, I matter, I matter. And instead, now that I do a job that I get that, you know, like in important levels of, <laughs> for one hour, one hour a night, fuck, I'm fine with, you know, taking the back seat at a general conversation. <laughs> I'm genuinely interested in other people's stories. You know what I mean? Yeah, you've sated the beast. You know, you've you've kind of yeah. uh yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, it's it's that it's a having this a beast is a great word, just knowing how to control the beast because the beast could bite your arm off or it could be a great protector. Yeah, that's true. That is so true. Um, question four, I guess all this relates is what will you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? I reckon, you know what? I reckon it's six pack abs. <laughs> Perfect. Luke McGregor told me he wanted abs once too. I was, I remember. Just- Mate, he and I both. He's a, he was on my podcast that I do called Fitbit about you know health and fitness, and he's we both set a goal to try and get six pack abs. This is back in 2019. I don't think either of us got it by 2020. But I I look. I thought about why 
And I think it's just because it feels like the epitome of, of um, physical fitness. And I was someone up until 2018, I was 125 kilos. I'd been obese for most of my, uh, you know, from the age of nine. And then, you know, had a switch and then started prioritizing my health. And I've now lost about 40 kilos since then. Wow. And so for me, I guess that's the one thing that I always think to myself, I, I, I keep pushing the boundaries with what I'm capable of, you know, physically, I mean, you know what I mean? So there are things that I like to keep pushing. And I feel like six pack abs is the one thing that I know is so hard. And especially for my body type and the way my binge eating brain is wired, it's going to be really tough, but it feels like the type of goal that, um, that I want to set for myself. And if I die before achieving it, I know I let my, I, I, I fell short. Health benefits aside, I asked Del Rook if losing 40 kilos has changed how he now views himself. Yes, I, I know people who have lost a lot of weight who have said that they're still the same person on the inside. And I understand what they mean by that because it is the same insecurities and the same, you know, um, uh, the brain that that disliked the way I looked at 125 kilos is the same brain that kicks off if I put on one kilo. It uh -huh. doesn't focus on, it doesn't focus on, Hey, mate, you've overall lost 40. It's just focusing on, you know, for example, during the lockdown, I got so um, fit um, that actually the total amount that I lost was 50 kilos from that starting point gotcha. of 125. So I got to like 75, but right now I'm sitting on like 85 kilos and my brain says, you fat shit, you fat shit, you fat shit. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. like, no, shut up. I've lost so much more. Leave yeah, me yeah. alone, right? Yeah. But, um, but that, that wiring is still the same. I get that. I get, and I actually agree but in terms of feeling like a different person i think for me the different person is probably true because of the way i see what i'm capable of forget how i look forget what uh what what i'm able to do it's just that the commitment to get started oh sorry um so for me it was just the fact that i'd been like obese since the age of nine I just thought it was part of who I was by the age of 32 when I finally decided to lose weight, yeah, right? Yeah. And and being teased about it. In fact, my comedy, so much of it was about that as well. Like, you know, we talked about identity before and my identity was very much linked to being the, the jolly, fat, drunk guy. Yeah. And so having to shave those off one by one. So I first dealt with sobriety. I first, I quit drinking about five years ago. And finally enough, after quitting drinking, I actually put on weight because I was replacing the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the binge drinking with pints of ice cream. Uh, and so I put on a bit of weight. And so being able to turn that around has almost given me the blueprint for anything else that I go forward and attempt because uh, I'll give you a specific example. When I finally decided to get healthy on the 1st of Jan 2018, um, the first couple of weeks in terms of exercise, I knew diet was something I need to work on. That's the main thing. But in terms of movement, uh, I resisted the idea of movement so much that I told myself for the first two weeks, all you have to do is just wear active wear. That's it. You just have to put on the shoes, some uh, the, put on the runners, put on a shirt, and that's it. And Zwa, I swear there were some days I didn't even want to do that, even though that was all I had to do. I would literally leave it next to my bed. So when I rolled out, it's right there. And I was still so embodying the anti-exercise mentality that I was like, no, I'm not going to do it like a child. I'm like, come on, mate, just put the shoes on. That's all you have to do. And you've ticked the box off for the day. Wow. And it sounds really 
um, silly and 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 how is that going to be helpful? But what it did is it slowly started to shift my identity towards someone who prioritizes his health. So every day when I woke up, I'm, I wore the active wear. So it didn't matter what I did afterwards. But what happened was once I did wear it and then go out for a coffee, I'm like, fuck, you're already wearing it. Go for a walk around the block. Yes. And then you do that walk. The walks become, you know, a 10 minute walk. The 10 minute walks become 10 minutes and then one minute of running. And then fast forward 20 months later, I did a full 42 kilometer marathon. That's amazing. So for me, that is sort of the blueprint for whether it's, I mean, kind of is with comedy as well, right? Initially, a five minute stand up set is eternity. Then you just go, okay, let's just break it down into a manageable chunk. Let's get one laugh. How about we just aim for one laugh today? And then you get the next one and the next one, and then you tie them together. All right, that's five minutes aside. All right, let's try another five minutes. That's now 10. Then we get to 20. Like, so for me, let's take my future goal of six pack abs, right? Yeah. I, right now, uh, if I was to really sit down and think about how do I get there, I'm so far from it because I have an issue called disc extrusion where a piece of my spine is sticking out like a, <laughs> like a jelly bean that smashes one of my nerves. Oh. So I, I first got to fix that before I can even consider getting abs, but I'm not as afraid of how far off I am because I know if I, as long as I'm consistent and I just do a little bit every day that, that, that there's a goal that I'm getting closer towards. I may never achieve it, but I've going back to the comedy thing about enjoying the process. I found things that I enjoyed the process of. So in terms of exercise, find the thing that you love doing and the health benefits are just bonus. You're just happy that you're doing the thing. That's right. hundred percent. Um, who's the person who most influenced you and how that would, that would probably be my brother because he is my best friend in the world, five years older than me. Uh, it feels like a longer gap, but we, he, he, I think he did a lot of heavy lifting in terms of, you know, bringing me into his world mm-hmm. more so than most people with a five-year gap would, most kids would have done. And um, I think in terms of influence, he probably gets it the most because dad worked overseas. So I guess he took a bit of a surrogate male uh, role, I guess yes. as well, but even something as simple as at the age of like five or six, whenever I made him laugh, he would go to mom's handbag, steal 10 rupees and give me and pay me. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. gave you, he's responsible, man. He's responsible yeah. for your stand-up. That, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> it's Pavlov's dog. It's like, Mate, yeah. hundred percent. It was a really good joke. 20 rupees. You know, that's when I knew I nailed it. <laughs> Mate, I gave you a toast. Um, when was the last time you cried and why? I reckon that was, um cry i would say tear up was last night <laughs> i yeah. was doing an instagram live with um with someone uh off the back of a, like a master chef thing that we were doing and we both talked about the impact of food and how smells can transport you to your childhood and because i used to never cook before going on master chef i mean i started learning in the pandemic and then i got asked to do master chef and i practiced all these dishes that i uh, you know had from childhood and i remember that day that I got the smell of my grandma's biryani, like it was the first time it hit me how homesick I was yeah. because I used to go back home three times a year. So mom and dad, my brother, they're all back in the, you know, overseas. And I used to get that smell only when I landed in Colombo or rather, you know, yeah. so one of the first few meals would get is grandma's biryani, which my auntie now makes. And the fact that I was able to get it in my own kitchen was like, you know, really an emotional moment. So describing it to her yesterday, cause she talked about her, the first time when her grandma died, she was like, it hit her that she'd never get to get, taste her grandma's doll and, uh, and, and never asked her how she 
can make it or whatever. She had to try and reverse engineer it. And I started feeling really scared because my mom makes this thing called paradas and I only have learned it from her over FaceTime. And I'm like, I started feeling really sad. Like, oh my God, I need to make it home so I can at least learn this uh, dish from her. Yes, like, mate. So- so that that that's probably the most recent time I cried. It's so true because my my uh, my mother was um a, a a great cook and a food writer. She wrote for Gourmet, and oh, wow. you know there's a number of um recipe, uh, so many recipes left when she passed away. But my my uncle has kept a few of them, and you know it's interesting because it's bittersweet because he doesn't cook them in the same why he doesn't have the special touch uh, but yeah. it's 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 nearly there for me and it's quite emotional it is it is remarkable the i think the sense of smell can trigger your oh, yeah. memories more acutely than any other sense so it just sends you off totally um and question seven is what is your current state of mind um i yeah i think current as we're speaking very kind of energetic very uh chuffed and like you know obviously going down memory lane obviously has that really um fills you with a little bit more optimism and hope. Um, yes. Whereas if you say, spoke, asked me that question at the start of this conversation, I'd be like, oh, mate, stressed out, trying to get some work, you know, all these things done today, and blah, blah, blah. Worried about the future. When am I going to see my mom and dad? When am I going to, you know, gotcha. get back to Melbourne? I mean, you know, all those things would have been rattling off all these various projects that aren't tied off yet. But, you know, I, uh, the honest answer is after these, you know, first six questions, I mean, a much better place. <laughs> That's good, mate. That's, I've, I've done my work. My work is done. <laughs> Um, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Um, there's a few that come to mind. I think I've mentioned a few already, like things like, you know, getting a hundred on that maths exam that was in second year when you're studying it, uh, marathons up there. But I think the one that would be the truest greatest achievement is seeing my parents face when I headlined um, the comics lounge in North Melbourne (laughs) now that was 2017 um, and it was for a while until my god my girlfriend and she has replaced them on the cover uh, uh, of my phone uh, lock screen but before that it was that photo of them standing next to me because it ties up everything we've talked about so far I reckon which is feeling regret that I didn't take full advantage of the 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 opportunities they gave me then you know dealing with the the fear of leaving accounting, then, you know, them being uncertain, is this going to work out, all those types of things. It kind of culminates in that one night where I was the headliner. They, they And it was like 400 people that day. And it was a stack lineup where everyone was killing. And I knew I had to come out swinging because I can't be the weakest on a night where mom and dad are in town. And so that combination of them being there, it's still probably one of the best performances I've ever given uh, you know back in 2017 you'd think I'd have gotten better but <laughs> like I probably have but it's the one that means the most to me and I think them seeing like mom this is sounds really morbid but mom had to kind of be rushed home afterwards because she was so like nervous about the whole night oh, of the wow. gig and then it going so well because she because she has performance anxiety it's probably where I've got it from so to see me control 400 people at a you know a, a, a comedy night like that and then have them like lining up to take photos and things like that was just overwhelming for her I'm still her idiot son that you know what I mean <laughs> like like and all of a sudden there's this you know there's this um what's the word um praise for me that's coming from this country that they only know as the the, the you know dominating like glenn mcgrath and shane warren like yeah. australia has a very negative vibe to most Sri yeah D- daryl hair <laughs> daryl hair 
Daryl Hare, Daryl Hare, <laughs> Steve, Ross Emerson, all these names, you know, like so. So for them to see their son come to Australia and then take, you know, take charge and be the main act of a comedy night there, it, you know, like you could, I could pinpoint things that I've quote unquote had, you know, achieved more. Like the Logie happened a year later, but I still hold this in higher regard because of what it meant to me because I think after that first gig that I took and I bombed and I was like oh this still feels amazing I knew I was going to do comedy for the rest of my life regardless of whether it works out or not so I think deep down because I was because of how shit I was when I started I didn't think they were going to be around to see it happen gotcha. so the fact that they yeah. were there alive and conscious to see me headline and be a full-time comedian effectively because that's all I really wanted to do was be able to pay rent from it yeah and be able to I mean I can see the sorry sorry to interrupt I I I can see you know so that moment all any any regret or any kind of guilt that you might have for for your your mum turning up 40 minutes early or you're not studying as hard as you should have at university while your while your dad was working a job I think I think it was all all forgiven you know, it's just, it just felt because it's in their face. The, the, I wish I could pull up the photo quicker because it was for the last, I would say, you know, for four years, that was my background because it, it, it like you can't cheat that face. No. That was genuine parental pride. And it's that moment it hit me goes, oh, that's what I've been chasing. <laughs> and so for me, it's like, I'll be honest with you, Zwari, like the, the month after they left or rather the, the, the week after they left that following month, um, I was a little down. I felt like I'd finally gotten what I always wanted and a, I missed them because they left. But, um, but I was like, what now? Like, it's almost like this weird feeling and it is kind of the best thing to happen to me because now everything I do in my work wise, I treat it as complete bonus. Like I achieved That's everything lovely. I wanted to do in that. Um, like I still work hard. I probably still work harder than I did, you know, ever i reckon i work really yeah. hard and i love it more than ever but i know no i now know what's driving me it's yeah, just yeah. the pure joy it's not chasing their approval anymore uh which i always had i always feel bad saying you're chasing their approval it's just deep down every child no, just wants too. to see it you know what i mean yeah. uh so i know i got it and i know that they are incredibly proud i so for me being a full-time comic and them seeing it and enjoying it was all i ever wanted so now it's like i don't know if you're an afl fan but it oh, feels yeah. like uh, Geelong in 2007 when they you know after that first quarter you knew they were going to win the whole grand but they just tip, kept going harder yeah even though it was the victory lap I'm like that's what I feel like I'm like I'm going to double down now even though I know I've already won why I wanted to get into this in the first place it's, it's great mate it's fantastic uh question nine who would you want on your side in a battle and why um you know what that's probably going to be my most like least thought through answer because the only thing I can think of is like one of those SAS Australia guys that I see (laughs) you know what I mean like they seem to know like have such a range of being able to protect me because I I can't fight I've never been in a fight the closest I've ever been in a fight is this brawl that happened you know in high school and everyone was like punching on and uh, and this one guy came over grabbed him on my collar clenched his fist and goes to deck me but then he saw how scared I looked so he unclenched his fist and slapped me like that's (laughs) how immense that's how that's the closest to a to a before that i've ever gotten to so for me when i think of being in battle with someone it's like one of those guys i'm like you guys tell me yeah. what you need there's ant that, that's yeah, yeah. And, and foxy and fox fox i, I think he's probably <laughs> yeah. my favorite Billy? is foxy i think foxy he's a unit yeah what an absolute, and he talks about crying and depression and yeah. all those that's things i'm it. like yeah man 
you're the man. Yeah, he's, he's got his podcast. He's, he's got a podcast. Oh, does he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, no, no, I'm, I'm a fan of his. I, I love watching that show. I, I, I would. <clears throat> there's no way I would <clears throat> ever accept going on it. I'm probably too old now, but um, but uh, I, I do, I do. It gets me. The the celebrity yeah. one gets me. Um, celebrity. I haven't seen the regular one. Yeah, either, me the celebrity neither. One yeah, yeah. And so this is going back to when you said, "Have you changed as a person or, or, or after losing weight?" This is where things have changed. Uh, four years ago, there's no way in hell that I'd even look at a show like that and consider it. Whereas now, I'm like, "Chuck me in there." I don't. I know I can't do any of it, but I just want to see at which point I break. Like I'm excited about the discomfort. Do you know what I mean? Wow. That's what's changed about me. Is learning how looking back on my life and realizing nothing I'm proud of happened in the comfort zone. Hmm. So you might as well lean into as much discomfort as you can. So for me, seeing that, uh, uh, you know, that change in me is what I think losing the weight has taught me. Okay. Well, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen, channel seven. Uh, let's get yeah. Dylan. Six. Yeah. Wait till I get my six pack. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know. Uh, <laughs> final question. What would you like your last words to be? I, I think again, I, I, I'm fully articulated, but I, I, I think would be great would be if I said something like, wow, that was awesome. Yeah. Uh, did you ever watch Entourage? Of course. There was, there was in the first season when uh, Johnny Drama gets pulled onto the Tonight Show or something like that. And they're watching it back and they're sitting back with beers and he's just so content and he goes, great fucking night. Like for me, <laughs> for me, that that type of feeling of like, oh, just sitting down, relax. Like I've thought about where I'd like to die. Um, and it's sort of in a beach with my, like maybe a deck chair or like a beach chair with my sand, feet in the sand with a little bit of the ocean hitting as the sun is setting. And I just close my eyes and I'm gone. Like oh, that would be my perfect Pretty good, route. mate. Probably the Maldives. You know? <laughs> Probably Maldives. I reckon that's what yeah. I'm tapping into. Yeah. The peacefulness of the beach, the ocean and all of that. And maybe saying something like, well, wow, it would be funny if it was something like, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. <laughs> but that's no, the- I think it's like, Wow, that was awesome. It's probably a nice way to go. Thank you so much for tuning in to 10 Questions. If you'd like to subscribe to us on Patreon, we're at 10 Questions with Adam Zwar, and that's where you can get the bonus content on every interview. Until next time, thanks for joining us.